All right. Uh, <clears throat> so we're going to get started. Um, we are pausing what we've been doing in the Old Testament, and we're, we're going into something that uh, I did a few weeks ago in the, previous, in the first building block on Sunday morning. So if, you, if you're here, you were maybe in that uh, first, just sort of bear with me. Some of this might be familiar to you. Um, what we're going to do is basically really put some definition to church. What is it that we're doing here as a church body? I know I, I preach a good bit about that on Sunday morning, especially through Matthew. It's, it's been helpful because that's one of the goals of the book of Matthew is really to kind of lay out Jesus establishing his church. But, um, b- but we want to kind of put some finer points on it, really deal with it on, on a Wednesday night where uh, maybe you could ask questions or we could dialogue a little bit more about it and where we can kind of get down into the maybe weeds to some degree as we go on. Some of this stuff early on, first couple of weeks, might be really familiar to you. You might kind of feel like this is a well-worn path, maybe, um, but that's okay. It'll, it's a steep ramp, okay? Let's just say it that way. Uh, it'll, it'll quickly get uh, where we're dealing with some complexities, and we'll see some of that tonight. Um, but we want to start by just laying a foundation of what is the church, and what are we really looking at here? What, what are the complexities of this picture that we call the church. And there are essentially three realities that are present always within our church. We learn from God's Word that apply directly to us. The first is that God has called Christians to be with Him forever, yet for a time, starting with the crucifixion of Christ 2,000 years ago until at least this very day. He has left us in the world, and has gathered us into local churches. So you and I are members of local churches. Most of you are, are members here, and, and uh, <clears throat> we are member, members of a local church, and this was clearly his intention. And sometimes it can feel as though he left us, uh, like the old Jurassic Park, you remember, where the guy just runs out of the car, and you got the dinosaur coming after the kids? And they're like, he left us, he left us, right? <laughs> Sometimes it can feel a little bit like that, but he's gathered us into these local assemblies. There's many across our community. Obviously, there's many across this nation and across this world, but it's been clearly his intention to gather us together in local churches. So that's one reality that's ever-present with us. The other is kind of strange, but it is a reality, is that he's chosen to use this local assembly, the local assemblies down the road, assemblies across town, assemblies across this entire community, nation, and world, these little local assemblies and our life together as the primary method for displaying His glory. Which I feel a little strange, right? We had a perfect guy here. The Son of God came, died for us, was perfect in every way, perfect displayer of God's glory. And, and if I'm sitting on the outside looking, evaluating the plan, I might think to myself, I mean, he's really a better ambassador of this whole thing than I am, because the third reality is we are all sinners. And you can kind of see how, especially with point number two, point number three seems to not make a whole lot of sense and seems to frustrate the whole process. If this local association here is a displayer, in fact, a primary method for displaying God's glory, wouldn't it be better if sin was just sort of not here? To me, I would think, hey, that's better. When you come in, you're going to see a bunch of perfect people. And what you end up getting is a, a lot short of that. Let's just put it that way. I don't, I'm not going to get personal, but, <laughs> but it's not close. And so <clears throat> those things, you can tell the first two things seem to be, all right, I can, I can get along with some of that. But this last thing seems to complicate things. But for now... In His wisdom, God has chosen for the church to display His glory, and 
the problem with that, obviously, is that his glory displayed his character. He's perfect. So how is it that you as a church body, me as a pastor, uh, our staff, and, and, and various other people that might come in contact with this church, or, or even the church down the road, how is it that God can say, you are a displayer of my glory, and you are completely imperfect people? You're sinners, and, and that's how I want to display my glory to the rest of the world. Uh, so, that means that we live currently under a lot of paradoxes. Things that se- are seemingly can't coexist at the same time. Um, we have, are, are gathered together as, as church members, um, and it raises the question, how can we as sinners gather together as a local church where we know and we hear frequently in the text of Scripture from the pulpit, from Sunday school lessons and building blocks and all those kinds of things that we're supposed to display unity. We're supposed to be unified. How is it that we can do that and yet as sinners we also recognize none of us sees everything perfectly. I don't. I mean, when I open Scripture, there's things that I don't understand. Well, I'm supposed to teach, but yet there's things I don't understand. Uh, Even in in teaching, even if I were to give you the most compelling argument for a particular position, you still might not be persuaded by it. There's differences. You're different, I'm different, we're we're different. And, I mean, sometimes that's obviously a, a result of sin. We don't expect that when we're gathered together on that final day, when sin is eradicated completely and we're, you know, c- celebrating, working, whatever our responsibilities are on new, on new earth under King Jesus, forever and ever, amen, we don't expect that we won't see things eye to eye at that point, right? But Yet there are times where we don't. And so we have this whole this word out here, unity. And you need, you need unity. We want to be unified. We want to have a, a united front in our church body. Because after all, we are displayers of God's glory. But then at the same time, we also have differences. We grow up in from di- we come from different backgrounds. We come from different families. We we come our our level of exposure to the gospel even is different. Some came to Christ when they're 25 or 45. And some came to Christ when they're five. And there's just been a various... And some had their parents teach them and disciple them and train them and teach them good, solid things. And maybe we're in a great church and others might not have been. And so we're all in different places. And so how is it that we can both be diverse and have differences and recognize that there are differences among us and yet also be unified? It's, it's a paradox. It doesn't seem that it could ever really work. Um, there are other things. How is it that sinners, as sinners, we can respond to our sin and the sin of others? We can confront it, and we can say we don't we don't want to put up with that here. We don't want to we don't want to tolerate. We don't want to live with you know sin in that in that sense, and yet also not descend into gossip and slander. How, how can you deal with the sin of somebody else, or maybe even somebody dealing with your sin? How can we do that kind of confrontation and not then let it spiral out of control where that person becomes the pariah of everyone? And how, how do we do that? I mean, the Bible calls us to do that, but how is it that we can do that when we recognize sin is going to be pretty, pretty prevalent around us? How can we trust leaders in our church? This is a... a huge issue across all churches is this idea that the person or people that are leading the church, you can trust them. How is it that we trust our leaders and yet still also recognize, well, they're sinners too. They're not infallible. They're not perfect. They're going to step on the rake from time to time, so to speak. How do we trust them and yet also verify, right? Um, how can we take our church and recognize that it's imperfect and it, and it can grow and it can be better. There's things that we can do that would make it better and yet also not let our healthy 
God-honoring, God-fearing criticism turn into grumbling and complaining. So, so we've got these challenges that are in front of us that make things incredibly complicated. And it's all complicated by the fact that we are sinners gathered together in a room to get, together, charged with the tremendous responsibility of displaying God's glory to the rest of the world, as if there's no pressure with that. Um, so, quite the, the challenge. And then, there's also some things that we really have to, to consider. There's a quote by John Stott I want to read here. Um, I don't agree with John Stott on everything, but uh, I think on a lot of things he's very good. And he says this, The church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It's not a divine afterthought. It's not an accident of history. And here's the reason why that's really important, I think. We've been talking a lot about the Old Testament. There's one way you could read the Old Testament. And that is to say, here's God's first people. It's His first swing at the baseball. And they just couldn't quite get it together. So God swung and missed. And so He's, before He takes another swing at that baseball, He's going to He's going to take a swing at this baseball called the church. And lo and behold, he sent his son, died for them, did a lot of things, gave the church a lot of things that he didn't give Israel, and left his spirit here, and lo and behold, he hit that one out of the park. One day he'll come back to work with the other baseball, but for the meantime, you know, the church is the, is the agenda. That's one way you could look at what's happening in the Old Testament. Another way you could look at what happened in the Old Testament is man fell, and God is displaying exactly what happens when man falls. That he can redeem them time and time and time again. He can bring them to repentance of sin time and time again, and yet sin continues to permeate their hearts. And we can look at the Old Testament as proof positive, mankind is in desperate need of salvation, and they cannot provide it for themselves. That's the other way to look at the Old Testament. I'm not saying those are exclusively the only ways you could, but John Stott is coming in and he's saying, you need to understand the church is not the second baseball, God's second chance. The church is not an afterthought, it was always the purpose. Um, and there's some good reason to believe that from Scripture, which we're going to talk about tonight. The church should be regarded as important to Christians because of its importance to Christ. There's a number of people that will tell you, and you, you may have even heard this from time to time. You, you're maybe your friend who doesn't go to church ever, and you say, hey, why aren't you going to church? What are you doing on Sunday? And they say, well, maybe. I, I, I get out on the boat, and it's just me and the water and the fish and Jesus. And, you know, the people are the church after all. And so, well, there I am. And I, I do more worshiping of the Lord out there on the lake fishing than I could ever do with a bunch of hypocrites in, the, in a room together. You, you ever hear, maybe not exactly that, but it's somewhere around there, Right? Why would I want to go to a room full of hypocrites when I'm the church? I got the Spirit of God within me. I'm going to go out on a boat or whatever, and I'm going to worship God out there. Um, I mean, huge problems with that. First of all, those people that you just slandered as hypocrites were bought by the blood of Christ. He died for them. And then you stand as their accuser. The church already has an accuser, the position is not open. Doesn't need, no applicants, need, no one need apply for the role of accuser. Satan has that responsibility locked down, all right? It's not open for debate. You don't need to apply for that, nor do I think you would want that job. But he founded the church. He purchased it with his blood and, and intimately identifies himself with it. He is its head. The church is his body. So, you know, I, I don't want this, this may sound crass, I don't want this to be crass at all. 
so take this in the best way possible. What, what would you think of a husband who said, I love my wife, but I hate her body? That, that would be awful, right? That would be a, a... You would think poorly of that man. In the same way, you can't love Christ and hate his body. That's impossible, right? The church is a vital component to your relationship with Christ. Now, it's not what the Catholic Church says it is. Okay? It's not that. The Catholic Church says, well, unless you come to church, unless you participate in sacrifices, we will not make you a Christian. That's effectively what's being said to the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is saying, we are responsible for making, manufacturing passports into the kingdom of heaven. That's not what the Bible says we are as a church body. Church, however, does validate passports. Passport is given to you by the Lord himself. I can't manufacture a passport. I can't bring you to salvation or grant it to you. But the church is responsible to authenticate salvation when it sees it and guard it with everything that it can. So, you can't love Christ and not want to associate with his people that he bought with his blood. So it's important, and so we, we have to understand that. Um, the church is also the body of, of Christ. In, in Going back to John Stott's argument, it, it, it's the eternal purpose. The church is the body of Christ. It's the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. It's the chief instrument for glorifying God in the world. The local church is. Look at... Um, Ezekiel 36, 22 to 38. This is a, a rather lengthy passage, but I think it's worth reading here. This is the new covenant that God is promising, and I want you to hear this. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which you have profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take from the na- take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Now, pause right there for just a second. You might think to yourself, well, Michael, he's talking about the nation of Israel. This is the Old Testament. Again, swing and a miss? Or is this all one continuous purpose of God? Well, you might say, well, he's talking about the nation of Israel here. He's not talking about the church. Why'd you read this for validation of the church? Listen to what he says in 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now notice notice what he says. He does not say, I'm going to, you're done. I'm going to start over with a new group of people and we're going to do this different this time. He he says, I'm going to take you. I'm going to gather you from all nations. I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you, and I'm going, to, I'm going to put my spirit within you. So, it's interesting then that Paul would come in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Look, look on the first page of the verses and say this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Who is he talking to? A bunch of Gentiles. Do you not know God's Spirit dwells in you? Now, 
This is normally the verse that we use to tell people don't smoke, right? Your body's a temple of the living God. And that's not precisely where Paul's aim is. The church at Corinth is pursuing all kinds of wickedness, and he's saying, look, the reason that you have to flee from wickedness is because God removed your heart of stone as part of the new covenant, gave you a heart of flesh. We call that rebirth. We call that salvation. We call that, there's a number of different names that we give to that, but that's what that is. When he removes the heart of stone, gives you a heart of flesh, puts his spirit within you, that's the same thing, puts his spirit within you, that enables you to obey. Why are you then pursuing disobedience? God has given you the ability to obey him. And who is he talking to? It's, it's not exclusively Israel. He's, Paul makes it very clear. This, Jew and Gentile alike are, are in this. And so the church is not only the body of Christ, they're the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit and the chief instrument for glorifying God in the world. So then look at Ephesians 3.10. What then is a result of that? He says, this is again on the second page of the verses, he says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You! Room full of redeemed sinners are the way God has put on notice all the rulers in the heavenly places. Congratulations. No pressure. Finally, the church is God's instrument for bringing both the gospel to the nations and a great host of redeemed humanity to Himself. So, so it's a twofold thing. The church is the way, the primary mechanism that God has for taking the gospel to people and using that gospel that is brought to people to bring those people to himself. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Here is the church who is entrusted as the caretaker of the gospel to go out and proclaim it, and in the proclamation, God changes the hearts of some during that proclamation and brings them to himself. You are the mechanism that he uses to do that. All right. So that, that introduces us to where we're at. Y'all are like, that was just the introduction. It was just the introduction. Let's, let's actually look at the word here. Um, the first goal of the church, of his church, is to demonstrate his divine mercy and he does this by saving men and women who are dead in their trespasses and sins. He brings them to life when they're dead to sins and enables them to walk according to his will. Now, that sounds really similar, I think, to what Ezekiel was already telling us, doesn't it? I'm going to raise you from the dead, I'm going to put my spirit within you, and I'm going to cause you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you are called. Doesn't that sound, that sounds like New Covenant language, doesn't it? Well, look at what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. So we're going to look at Ephesians 2 tonight. That's chiefly going to be where we, where we are. But I want you to see 2, 1 to 10. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of all those great things that you did, no, it says, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. 
It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, He leaves not a lot of wiggle room for you to say you did anything. Right? I mean, what, what does He actually give you credit for? Bringing death to the table. That's what we get credit for. He calls us a new creation. In the same way that Adam was born out of the dirt, God just formed him in the dirt and breathed life into his nostrils, in Christ you are created that same, very similar way. He breathed into you with His own Spirit and made you alive by grace. What did you provide? So it's important that you understand that we're dead and the only thing that makes us alive is that God actually made us a new creation. That we didn't provide any of that. That our faithful response the repentance that followed after that, confession of faith in Christ, all of those things that a pastor would tell you from the pulpit, believe in the Lord Jesus, repent of your sins, all of those things are a product of Him raising you from the dead first. I can say that until I am blue in the face. Repent of your sins, come to faith in Christ, and the only ones that will are the ones that God wakes up from the dead. That's it. And the only way that happens is by His Word being proclaimed to the people. Why? Because His Word is the only thing that can create. I can say, let there be light all day long. And unless I'm standing next to a light switch that's also hooked up to electricity, it's not going to happen. I can't manufacture anything by my words. So the problem, let's just take this to a practical matter. When it comes to salvation of people, creating these new people in Christ, there is a significant problem when, if I were to ever get up from at the pulpit and preach to you some psychological counseling. Here's ten ways to have a better marriage and maybe sprinkle on it some verses taken out of context that may not even really mean that, but when you hear them at first read, you think, oh yeah, that's talking about my marriage. Now, when you dig down to the context, it's really not talking about your marriage at all, but if I were to sprinkle that on it in the right way and in the right style, you might go, oh yeah, that applies to my marriage. That's what I need to do. That's how I need to have a better marriage. You understand that's not God's words. Those are my words. My job is to take God's words and make them make sense to the people. Give them the sense of what he's actually saying in context. Why? Because his words wake people up from the dead. My words don't do anything. They might make you struggle and strive in your marriage. And they might make you feel like, okay, this is how I'm supposed to please God. And then it might make you really frustrated when you continue to fail at that. Or, I could take God's words, we could read them, understand what they mean, and apply them to our lives, and trust this is God's way of creating new people. Understand? Make sense? So that's what he's saying. You're you're a new creation. It's as if God is speaking into the world again. Be born. And his people wake up from the dead. And then all of the other things come after that. And why was that necessary? Why, why, why did he choose to do that? Why is that a displayer of God's divine mercy? So, so, how is it that you as a church are then able to go, we display God's glory. We display his divine mercy to everybody who's looking on. How, how is it that we can actually say that? Because you were children of wrath. 
and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and now you have become a people who own them and who confess them to the Lord. And because He has taken you from children of wrath, woken you up, woken you up, awakened you to life and put His Spirit within you, you now grow convicted over sin and you confess sin. You own sin and you run from sin. So then it, it makes the dynamic inside the church quite a bit different than what you find in your workplace, doesn't it? I, I worked for a, a place where people were, were pretty comfortable climbing the corporate ladder and, and stepping on a lot of people along the way. It was common. And if you were going to advance in your career, that's what you were going to have to do. That, that's common in a lot of workplaces. And so, do you find that in the church? Well, sometimes you do. But it's, it's sin. We're striving away from that. We don't want to be people that step on each other. We, we actually want to be people that build each other up, that hold each other accountable, that encourage one another, that are there for the other person's growth and benefit and gain. So in other words, we're saying about the church, like, I, I, am, I am benefited, I am blessed when you grow. That's a dynamic that people don't find anywhere else. If we're really laying down our lives, like Christ has called us to, like He did, and we're emulating Him, and we actually have His Spirit dwelling within us, then what they find in here, sure, we're sinners, we own that, we admit that. But because of the Lord's Spirit, I want you to grow. I want you to be blessed. I want you to benefit. So you have pastors that see churches as advancing some career. And, and I'm telling you right now, that will be a crippling factor in the American church. That it seems as though Smaller churches are lily pads to the next church. That's where I come from. That's, <laughs> and it's unfortunate. And churches get used to that being the case. It's a shame. Um, so that's one goal. We're a displayer of a divine mercy beca precisely because we own the sin that is, is in our hearts. We recognize that it's there. That, that's how those seeming paradoxes can actually begin to flesh themselves out in a positive way. But the second goal of God for His church is to do a uniting work. Uniting us to one another. Um, look at Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. I'll get there eventually. It'll happen. Is it on there? Did I not include it? Michael. I hate it when I do that. I'm sorry. Do what? Yeah. All right. Ephesians 2. I was going to say, I thought I grabbed a hymnal at first. All right. All kinds of over the all over the place. Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. I'm sorry, I didn't. I didn't provide that. My, my fault. Um, Ephesians 2, 11, 20. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made, by, made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's pretty bleak. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So he made us, he united us to one another. But I want you to pay close attention to what Paul says the church is. You were once strangers and aliens, exiles from the commonwealth of Israel. Think about what that means for just a second. What, what is he referring to? New Testament or Old Testament? Uh, Old Testament. Right. You, you were once, according to the Old Testament, strangers and aliens, you had no hope and you were without God in the world. And, and here's why he says that. There's no way that you could uncover Yahweh unless you were in the promised land or meeting with a Jew and talking to a Jew who is going to bring you into the temple and essentially convert you, so to speak. That was it. You had to come into the commonwealth of Israel. Paul says now that's all been done away with. He tore down a dividing wall of hostility, meaning that all God's people are now united in what is called the church and are professors of faith in Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile alike. He, he tore that all down and he made one new man called Christian. That's it. Tore it down. It's not a ball that he missed on the first swing, he's now united the two, brought them both together. So that's, that's important because that means, first of all, that the church is the beneficiary of all God's covenant promises. Why? Why is the church the beneficiary of God's covenant promises? Wait, 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 wait. wait. Are you talking about the covenant promises like a land and like temple and like all that, all the stuff to Abraham. Yes. All of God's covenant promises we are beneficiaries of. But why is that? Paul tells us because all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Why do we get those covenant promises? Paul says, because Christ got them. That's why. It is for no other reason. You didn't do anything. You didn't say, well, I walked into this church. No, you didn't do that. Nope. I'm a pretty cool person. I, have you met? That's not it either. You gained all those covenant promises because Christ got them. He is everything that Israel was told they needed to be, couldn't. Prove they couldn't. Jesus is it. He's the only guy, the only one. He walks into Israel as a Jew. All these covenant promises of Abraham standing out in front of him. Here's the qualification. You have to be perfect to get them. You can't sin. Done. So the land promise, promises to Abraham, all the promises in the Old Testament that we look at and we go, those are promises to Israel. God's got to come back and fulfill those promises one day. No, he doesn't. He already gave them to one Jew. One Jew earned them. 
They're all His. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. And then what did He do for you? He made you His body. So now the things that are given to Christ, I inherit too. Why? Not because I did anything. Because Christ chose to make me His own. That's it. He did that for the very first thing he does in Acts, when the church is formed. It's like 100% Jew. At first, thousands and thousands. We, we look at Jews as mostly atheists now, and to, many, to a large degree they are. That wasn't true at first in Acts. They received the preaching of Peter, and they came by the thousands a mega church dropped down in the middle of Jerusalem and the apostles were the elders of the church. And the people gave themselves to the teaching and preaching of the apostles. Elders of the church. That's the biggest church that's probably ever existed right there. And it was 100% Jew. But then it spread in, to all the nations and he called into the Gentiles. And when Paul and Peter and, and many others went out preaching the word and reading the word to people. What happened to them? God woke them up from the dead and he put his spirit within them too. And, and to the point that Cornelius faints and starts speaking in tongues and all his people are speaking in tongues and Peter is left with no other conclusion but that God woke them up from the dead and put his spirit within them. Nobody else can do that. You can't manufacture that. That is the spirit of God and God alone, that has, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, when they were dead, made them alive. And I, I don't know what you want me to do with that, Peter says to the rest of his Jews, but there is no doubt that God's Spirit is within them. So God just starts waking people up. And it's not Peter's own doing. Peter's trying everything to distance himself from these Gentiles. God just chooses to do it through his word. Wakes them up. Now, so the church then, everyone that's included in the church is the beneficiary of all the covenant promises because they're all given to Jesus. They all find their yes in Jesus. That's it. But they're also the product of the restorative work by Jesus. He, he is restoring, he's bringing together all of his people, he's tearing down walls of hostility and uniting them together. And how does he do that? But by waking sinners up in their sin so that they confess their sin. So the thing that we think might be counterintuitive to the work of God in our congregation is actually the thing that testifies to the rest of the world something different is here than is on the outside. It's when we actually say, this is our sin. Why? Because then I can tell you, I can assure you, I can't boast in anything that I've done. I'm a sinner. I can only boast in Christ. He did it for me. That testifies to the grace and mercy of God. That makes the church a displayer of God's glory. And, and, and yet, we have it upside down sometimes, where we think, that if we really want to display God's glory, we have to make everyone think we're perfect. They've got that in the workplace. They see that, and that so-called perfect person that looks great to the boss has stepped on the throat of everyone along the way. They know he's not perfect, but he seems he doesn't know he's not perfect. But in the church, you see people saying, I have nothing. Christ. That's it. That's the definition of poor in spirit in the Beatitudes. That makes the church a displayer of the mercy of God, of His glory. And, he, and we're a product of, of Christ's restorative work. We're also the people of God. When you say the people of God, a lot of people think Old Testament. No, don't think Old Testament. He tore down that wall. He's done with that. It's all the people together. The church is the people of God. They're citizens of God's kingdom. Uh, I want to show you how the New Testament...
Peter especially, he actually makes that argument. Um, I want you to first look at Exodus 19, 5 to 6. Old Testament, Israel's gathered around Sinai. They just came out of the Exodus. They're really confused. They're thankful that they're out of slavery, kind of. And they're like, what do we do? Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, oh, they're not going to do that. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. He's telling this to Moses. This is, if you can keep my covenant, here's what you can be. You, you can be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. You can be a treasured possession. Doesn't happen. New Testament. Jesus does, is, treasured possession. Jesus walks perfectly as a, as a Jew, fulfills the covenant, is this, incorporates us into his body. And now, Peter says in 1 Peter, listen to this, 1 Peter 2, 9-10, but you, he's talking to the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Did Peter just make those words up? You just fabricate those? No, he didn't. Did he tell you he was quoting Exodus 19 or he was referencing Exodus 19? No, he expected you to read it. And you to go, oh, I recognize those words. You're saying I am what... God told the nation of Israel around Mount Sinai they could be, should they keep his God. I sin. Yeah. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. Not because of your righteousness. Because of the righteousness of Christ. Um, so, if that's true, I'm going to quickly go through some of these. There, there, there are kinds of unity that people try to manufacture. We're going to spend a lot more time on a, a lot of this going forward in the weeks to come, and I'll probably come back and, and revisit these uh, next week, but for now, let's just kind of go through them so that you can get all your blanks filled in. Uh, one version of counterfeit unity that we try to manufacture is in or, what I refer to as organizational unity, and that says that, you know, well, there's lots of different denominations, so shouldn't we all just be kind of one denomination? Shouldn't we, you know, and the, the reason that that's a, a problem, um, and what we're going to talk about different denominations and why different denominations exist uh, much later on in this study, but um, we, we think maybe, okay, if we just all came together and just were one church, and that would be some, some kind of unity, and this, you know, tears down at our argument by having all these different denominations. But I think it confuses unity with uniformity. Everyone has to be of the same opinion on everything. And that, that's not true. Just because we have differences of opinion on things does not necessarily make us ununified. Um, and I want to come back to that next week. Second kind of, of counterfeit unity is gospel plus unity. And this is a kind of unity that is created out of things like demographics, race, a uh, lot, lot of different, um, uh, different kinds of things, affinity groups and things like that. Um, it's uh, basically a unity that says, in order for me to have a friend, that person needs to share my same kind of life experiences. I'm, I'm glad to see uh, small groups that have been created in homes where there are people of different ages there. Uh, our small group is mostly empty nesters, and we love that. Uh, we're not empty nesters, by the way. We, our nest is very busy and loud. But we have a lot of empty nesters that come over, and, and we love that because there's a totally different perspective. Um, there is a totally different, and, and, and what brings us together in our house is not our kids. It's not that they, they really, they get me and my addiction to a smartphone. It's not that. It's Jesus. And that's it. So one of the reasons why I, I really, I'm not the biggest fan of what has been somewhat traditional in Southern Baptist Church of, of Sunday schools 
is because they're largely built on age. And you're constantly together with people of your own age. And part of the reason why building blocks exist is there's several reasons, but one, one big reason is because it puts people that are of completely different age groups together. And they're sitting next to each other. And it, it, it causes us to all, and every 13 weeks it changes. And so it, it, it does that, and I want it to do that. And there's a reason why we do that. I, I want the church to be come together around the gospel. And for me to be friends with a 70-year-old, not because of, you know, we have the same love of Facebook or whatever. I hate Facebook. I don't know why I use that example, but because we, we love the same Savior. Um, so in gospel-revealing unity, the relationships that we have might never exist outside of the gospel. That shows the world, how is it that a 30-year-old, 38-year-old, has anything in common with a 78-year-old? Because they love the same Lord. That's the basis of their unity. We will come back next week, I promise, and revisit this and open up questions. I promise we'll get to questions. At the first, there's a lot of, there's a lot of content, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for an opportunity to come together. I thank you for um, study on the church. I thank you for what the church is. And I pray for um, the effectiveness of what we're studying for our church body as we think about what the church really is, how you intend to use us as a church body as we bring that down to just a really local level and as we start thinking about what our mission is and, and what that means for us, I, I pray that you would help all of this to seep into our pores, that we may love what you have done here and come to celebrate uh, who we are in Christ alone. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.